Coming to you from Eastern Nazarene College in Quincy, Massachusetts, it's Ask Science Mike Live! You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. This is a very special Christmas edition of the program because we have a Christmas tree on stage that you can't see on the internet. The questions are unscreened, the answers are unrehearsed, and I don't know where this evening will go any more than you do. And also, I'd like to thank my friends at Eastern Nazarene College for hosting tonight, but I'd also like to say that any crazy words that come out of my mouth are my opinion and not theirs. So let's see what happens and get it started. Uh, Thanks for coming all the way to Boston. As we were saying earlier, it's hard to get musicians and writers all the way up this far. So I have a question about the election and what we're going to do in this post-era. So I studied international relations in grad school, and so when I was looking at this election, I was far more concerned about things that you've mentioned, like nuclear war, um, like general escalation uh, between large armies and militaries, than I was about um, things like uh, abortion and social issues um, that might be treated very somewhat poorly on the more conservative side. Mm-hmm. So with my conservative family, my Republican family, they seem to be more concerned with um, how our politicians are going to treat these issues like abortion and, and gay marriage than they are about us launching ourselves into a global war um, and other, other big issues like that. I've heard you say similar things like that, not to put words in your mouth. So I was wondering what you think about starting that conversation with people and being able to work through the logic of, is it are some of these things more important at some times than they are in others? And how do we start to have that conversation with people who are very passionate about social issues and moral issues in politics? Yeah, really good question. Um, I did a Facebook Live yesterday about this. Now, what's weird, my friends on the Internet, you're hearing this deep into December, but it's technically still November as we're recording tonight. So if you want to find that video, go back to... November 29th on my Facebook page, and you can hear it, because uh, I've been talking about politics more in the last few months than the rest of my life combined, uh, and I hate it, because <laughs> what am I passionate about? I'm really passionate about the intersection of science and faith. I feel like I have interesting, meaningful things to contribute to the conversation. I feel like politics in terms of energy, is like wrestling a pig. Uh, It's disgusting, the pig kind of enjoys it. Um, And in terms of science, that's a southern colloquialism, it's a thing. So, uh, I say y'all. And then on the other hand, when you try to use science in the political realm, like it's pretty easy to draw contrary narratives or interpretation of data in politics because you're talking about incredibly complex systems. You're talking about economies, 
you're talking about sociology, you're talking about human psychology times, what, 337 million, something like that in the US now? So um, that number of points of interaction creates incredible complexity, which is why I've historically not identified strongly with any political party, because the idea that there's one ideology that always works to govern humans, property, and economies seems crazy. It seems the best we can do is be prescriptive with different approaches on social policies and taxation and regulation, and then monitor kind of our data points and see if things are working or not, and if they're not, change them. For most of our country's history, that's actually worked okay. Um, the downside, in many ways, or what I thought was the downside of the American political system for a long time, was its emphasis on two parties, which thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda, I understand, uh, emerged basically because some of the founders really hated each other. And, uh, and so they baked into our process, at the state level especially, a winner-take-all system that favors two political candidates. I'm like, how much diversity of opinion can you have on a multiple-choice test where you pick A or B. Well, how is that going to allow us to express our ideas of government, governance to our elected officials? Uh, but there's this beautiful thing. If you consider politics from a Darwinian lens, right? So you don't have many points of data, A or B, but you have a selection pressure in the form of elections that if parties drift too far from what the country thinks is good for the country, Americans throw a party out on its derriere, right? Which is the energy of national politics in America since our inception. America has never passionately voted for parties. They've gotten mad at whomever is in charge and thrown them out. Now, occasionally, and very occasionally in American political histories, parties so dogmatically attach themselves to an ideology that they go extinct. We used to have a Whig party in America. I don't know if you know this, we haven't elected a Whig in a long time. <laughs> the Democrats used to be called what? The Democratic Republicans, right? And they had a realignment that caused the party to re-identify itself completely. Uh, but speaking of realignments, the party of Lincoln was socially progressive and stood for social issues. And the uh, oppositional Democrats were primarily centered in the South and were pro-slavery. So the selection pressure of people trying to figure out who best represents my interest and politicians trying to make a living by convincing people they stand for them creates a series of ideological mutations that get selected for or against in elections, and from a metapolitics perspective, the American system is actually quite clever. There is a problem. Our system has a lot of intrinsic assumptions about polarity and under-the-table dealing. Right? Again, thanks to Lynn Manuel Miranda, we all have in our popular imagination the fact that the Capitol is in Washington, D.C., 
because some guys went to dinner and had an off-the-record conversation, which also birthed the stock market. It's a big deal. And as we have tried to root for good reasons corruption out of politics, we've discouraged non-public conversations, and now we are in a situation where thanks to Freedom of Information Acts, which again I think are a good thing, um, conversations that happen in recorded media, especially digitally, can be requested and have to be released to the public. And by the way, thanks to hacking, conversations that were never intended to be public sometimes just get released anyway, which creates an environment where people are afraid to speak in conciliatory ways across the aisle which is driving a process of intense polarization. And I've seen some really interesting um, data projections that look at different uh, congressional bodies over time and the amount of legislation that was involved in any two people in a Congress and where they exist on a political spectrum. And there used to be this thick webbing in the middle where centrist Republicans and centrist Democrats often worked together on legislation that got passed. And as you've watched, especially since uh, Gingrich-Clinton and the contract for America, that web started to sever. And when you get to contemporary congressional politics, there is almost no connection between the two parties. And this has been reflected in an internet-driven electorate which exerts extraordinary influence in the primary process. So for both Republicans and Democrats, more than ever, different beliefs and behaviors are rewarded at the primary stage, but a shift towards a centrist position for, prim- for um, general elections is no longer accepted by a lot of voters, especially on the right, but the left is starting to follow suit. So we're losing the ability to compromise politically, and what I'm seeing, well, it started with Obama. It started with Obama. A lot of the people who are so excited about Trump right now felt like progressives feel in 2008. They felt forgotten. They felt like uh, the country was about to fail. They felt like God was about to heap out judgment on the nation. And that energy has been simmering for eight years, along with um, some data has come out showing the primary factor uh, predicting a Trump vote was not wealth like we thought it was. It was education level. So Trump really, really excelled with low information voters at all income levels, uh, especially if they're white. And this has led to a process where not only we can't talk to each other at the Congress, we can't talk to each other on Twitter, and we can't even talk to each other at the Thanksgiving table. And this is a big issue because, like religion, your views about God are closely associated with your personal identity. And so when someone discusses ideas about God that are different than your ideas about God, it becomes a critique of your identity and your amygdala tends to take over unless you have a very practiced posture of civility in that kind of conversation. 
Politics does the same thing. Only let's, let's give Christianity and other faiths some credit. They have a central message of love. So in the process of trying to teach people to proselytize or engage in interfaith dialogue, we teach people to kind of hold their identity a little more loosely, that maybe even in evangelical America, if you want to convince the person to know Jesus, you actually have to be nice to them. That's not foundational in either of the political parties. There's no discipline of like, love your conservative, right? That's not in it. You know what I mean? So it's created just this incredible oppositional energy. And both sides now have social issues they care deeply about based on fundamentally different forms of creating a moral system, right? Uh, on the left, the for- foundation of moral and ethics tends to be like consent. It tends to be someone's uh, right to live a life of their choosing. On the right, the language is we want to maximize personal liberty. The subtext is often for people much like ourselves uh, because on the right, you have a stronger identification with divine law. How differently do patriotic Americans approach, oh, let's say flag burning? On the right, it's like, yeah, that should be treason. Losing your citizenship, we should execute them because they're attacking the country itself, right? Because we're identifying this flag as a symbol as being intrinsically as valuable as what it represents. And someone on the left might say, well, I would never burn a flag, but... I mean, ultimately, it's just a flag, right? It's not hurting anyone if you burn a flag. You see the difference in how moral decisions are made. This is incredibly important in these conversations because we have to understand that on the left, when you want to stand up for the rights of marginalized people or same-sex marriage or whatever, on the grounds that it hurts no one, on the right, they would say, but it defies the will of God and therefore what? Hurts everyone. In marriage counseling, they call that an uh, irreconcilable difference, right? <laughs> That's the kind of thing, well, you're going to have to agree to disagree or one of you has to change your mind. Or we'll just talk about the same thing for the next 20 years in this counseling room, right? So is the answer like an American great divorce? Do we just like put up border fences along like the Northeast Corridor and the West Coast and just build like a giant flyover between, like that won't work. I don't know if you know this, the red states grow all the food. You know what I mean? Like that's really uh, vital. You know, California grows some food, but not enough to feed LA, much less, you know, Brooklyn and LA. So we've got to figure out some way um, to converse. I am figuring this out in real time. I thought I was great at it. I used to be much better at having cross-the-aisle political conversations, but I have realized I lean a lot further left than I ever have in my life right now. Now, part of this, I was, I was talking to someone today. Um, I feel like for like 15, 20 years, the Republicans have been like nudging me with a pitchfork, like, please don't vote for us. Um, 
but it's also I've just I've, as I've gotten older, I've I've gotten a little lefty, um, and that means I, I when my when my own family can't understand the difference between personal and systemic racism, and I talk about systemic racism, and they perceive I'm calling them a racist, conversation's over. It's even worse when I'm talking to someone who actually expresses personal racism. And because I so now closely identify with all of you that listen to the show, and I feel like I have a tribe, I'm like, well, I don't even need that tribe. I'm not going to talk to racists. It's a huge problem. Because guess what? Human beliefs are formed by social identity. So if all of us people that believe in equality and justice for everyone keep writing off and quarantining our racist neighbors and relatives, guess what just happened? We removed that piece of social identity that could potentially modify their beliefs, which lets them feel forgotten, attacked, polarized, and justified. It's incredibly important, especially for white people to maintain some form of civil dialogue and relationship with people across the political aisle. What does that look like? Here's the tough thing. It looks like listening. If you show up at Thanksgiving and you've studied, like you're ready, right? When that turkey gets sliced and the plates are handed out and someone makes a Trump comment, you have 30 New York Times articles memorized ready to go, let's do this, like you're going down, I have superior information, no, um, why Trump, explain it to me, I, I honestly don't understand, help me understand why Trump was good for the country, and if, as they explain that and say, okay, I, I, I didn't realize a lot of that. So help me understand, uh, white vote overwhelmingly went for Trump, and the only ethnic group in America that a majority went to Trump was white people. <laughs> help me understand how this doesn't denote a race problem in the country, and what could we do, what do you think we could do to help address racial issues in this country? Get them talking, get them sharing, and listen. This is the third episode in a row I've said this, but it'll be new to all of you. Uh, sorry, internet. But um, who do we expect is going to go into rural America and have these conversations? I, I grew up in the South. I'm trying to move to California as soon as I possibly can. That's the problem. That's why popular votes get won on the left. They don't have any electoral value because they're happening in like five cities. That's why we've lost all the governor's mansions. That's why we've lost all the state legislatures. And that's why we've lost both houses of Congress and why we just lost the Supreme Court. And listen to me saying we, like I'm a card-carrying Democrat. Um, see how easy it happens, social identity? It's real insidious stuff. So um, I, have, I have family that has never left Florida or Georgia. I have family that's never been on an airplane. I have family that's never had sushi. You know what I mean? So here I am in a position of 
dramatic economic privilege. I'm a, I make my living selling books and people listening to my voice. <laughs> that is not like a rural occupation. Like my, my cousins literally grow our food and cut our timber. And do they have uh, some mistaken assumptions about people difference? Races and ethnicities? Yeah, they've never met them. How, how would they know? And who do I expect to go have that conversation if I won't, if I feel morally superior in some way and I wash my hands of my own family? That work is for me. And what I've realized, there is not a person in the United States of America more responsible for how this election went than me. I didn't vote for Trump, but I got him elected. So what's the next step? Listening to things we can't stand to listen to, but to understand the heart of the matter, to maintain relationship and connection to over time, and by time I mean 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, help our friends and family understand that in America it is not actually life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone. And it won't be America until that promise is real. So, hello, Science Mike. Um, I started listening to you about a year and a half ago uh, when my fiance introduced me to you. Um, he's probably your most avid listener on both podcasts. All right. Um, but I'm not going to embarrass him. Um, and uh, we even put charity water on our registry. Okay. Um, so, Love it. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, I just want to thank you for the work that you do on your podcast um, and the book. Um, and sometimes you do some blog posts. And there was one in particular. <laughs> I haven't in a while, but yes, I did yeah, start blogging. There was one in particular, though, the Dream with Jesus one. Oh, yeah. Um, that one just, like, floored me. Um, as somebody who, um, like, has made their career and their lifestyle about social justice mm-hmm. um, and also has strong but sometimes unfortunate ties to the evangelical church, um, I found it really encouraging. Um, like, I know... Like in that blog post, I don't know if it was your dream where you basically had this vision where um, the sower and the seed was analogous to um, Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. and people not receiving that message. Mm -hmm. And um, it just really helped me like feel like solidarity. Um, So anyway, I I, um, kind of grew up with like the like Michael Gunger and like back to friend of God with Israel Hutton. <laughs> so like, I'm ve- so if you know Michael's like church background, that's mine. I'm even half Puerto Rican. So okay. I like, may give you context uh, for my question. So um, over the years, I've slowly detached from the charismatic church and um, it has nothing to do with like theological beliefs, but really it's the stance that far too many churches and voices of influence take on issues of justice. Um, my question is, what's happening in my brain, for example, when a worship song I used to love comes on, but I immediately have to turn it off in disgust? Um, not because of what it's saying, uh, but because that worship leader tweeted out um, something like, all Palestinians are Muslims trying to kill God's chosen people, therefore we are at war for a reason. This was actually said by a worship leader. Um, oh. Yeah. 
Uh, he also posted something on Instagram that I won't repeat. Um, I think my Palestinian Christian friends would find that hard to believe. I know. But, yeah. I did. I I was working at World Vision at the time, and I posted. Thankfully, they had this like whole article about Christians and Palestinians. You know, they're trying to build those bridges with evangelicals. Um, but anyway, I wanted to know what's happening in my brain um, when I can't even talk to some of my friends because they voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, when the pain in my heart I feel for the evil people associate with um, out of ignorance, uh, but willful ignorance. Um, and I also um, like want to know when I just can't even like listen to anything to do with like white evangelicalism, for mm-hmm. example, because I know if they're not standing up against injustice, then they're complicit. Mm-hmm. So my question is what's happening in my brain whenever these associations or these reminders with a community I used to call home make me fiercely uncomfortable because of their alliance with injustice? Thank you. Oh, uh, great question. So first of all, you may not know, I started as a blogger. Uh, I thought that'd be the best way to like get my story out was blogging. And that was right when blogging was dying. So it was like a ton of work, and I'd get really excited if like 5,000 people read a blog post. Be like, oh, yeah, this is working. And uh, then I discovered like I can just talk in a microphone and put it on the internet. It's a lot less work, and a lot more people listen. <laughs> uh, so that's why I'm a podcaster, not a blogger. I still do blog occasionally. I don't know, just because. Um, and that was just stalling so I could think of my answer. So I used to be Southern Baptist. Now I roll hard with the Methodist. Wesleyan's what's up. So, and I recently spoke at a clergy gathering for my conference. So like the pastors in the Florida conference all got together to hang. They brought me in to speak because I like have a Methodist shout out on the book, which I think was a, a bit of excitement for my fellow Methodists who were like, wait, somebody under 50 goes to the, our church? So uh, Methodists are kind of graying. It's, it's a mainline thing. So, um, and our bishop, Ken Carter told a story uh, about the prodigal son. You've probably heard this parable if you've been exposed to the teachings of Jesus at all. It's one of his like, like number one radio hits, right? The prodigal son parable. So um, it's like multi-platinum parable. <laughs> and but he, he kind of told this story different than I've heard it told before in that he denoted our more fundamentalist or legalistic Christians as the older sibling in the story. Blew my mind. Because it painted that tradition in a completely different light. Um, And so he was saying, we have a lot of prodigals. And he was actually talking in the Methodist church, right? Because it's a... A very like, no, left, right, everything, come on in, like, kind of church. And um, so a lot of people are progressives because they've been hurt a lot. (laughs) Like, they have a lot of scar tissue. And when you've been hurt by somebody deeply, you kind of have a couple strategies. You either kind of start lashing out at people or you learn to treat other people with grace. And so he's like, so we've got all these prodigals in our denomination, and we're so happy they've returned. Obviously, I identify very strongly with the prodigal narrative, but I never even thought about the older brother. So you can imagine 
all of the people I used to go to church with that are Southern Baptists that never had like an atheism thing that are trying to spread the gospel, and I'm the one with a book deal, and they go, uh, God? <laughs> I worked the farm the whole time. He went and ate with the pigs. I mean atheists, right? But the whole point of that story, what does the father do to the older son? Does he rebuke him? No. He affirms his love for the son and his belonging and says that what he desires most is a whole family with the older son and the prodigal in fellowship together. So yeah, do I differ on some very significant issues with evangelicals? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think some of conservative evangelical teaching puts a barrier between God and people and causes suffering. But before I get too high on my high horse, I was a conservative evangelical like nine, it hasn't been a decade since I believed exactly the same things. So where do I like decide like I am enlightened and they're backward? Let's also remember, by the way, in an evangelical church, if you talk about the poor and the orphan and the widow and pass the plate, you can make something happen. These aren't people like, so on the left, we're all like, let's gather everybody's stories. Let's get consensus. Let's all talk about it. You know, well, you know, well, you know, I, I don't have money this month, but next month I, I think I'll, I'll participate in that. But, you know, I, I want to hear, we're going to hear everybody's perspectives. And evangelicals just like, a pastor says, we got to build wells in Africa. And people get out the checkbook and they make it happen. They're not um, evil. Evangelicals aren't evil. Evangelicals have hurt people. I've hurt people. So in your brain, there's two things at play. One, trauma. You came from that tribe and you are not in that tribe anymore, and there was a sense of separation anxiety that we call grief, and that may or may not have been resolved or healed in your life, that gets stored in your brain as a relationship between neurons that includes uh, the anterior cingulate cortex in a, in, a, in a dark way, the flip side of compassion, a warm part of feeling in the anterior cingulate cortex is, de is a depression or a melancholy. Both of those happen in the same region of the brain. And the amygdala, fear and trauma, you have some mix associated with that pattern. And for a lot of people that are former charismatics, former evangelicals, our exit from those denominations involved some degree of what? Rejection. Well, we're social mammals. Rejection leaves scars you keep the rest of your life psychologically especially if you're rejected from an entire community. If you are shunned or ostracized by more than half of the people you know, that leaves a mark. And so when anything you perceive in your environment 
passes into your thalamus and gets processed by the hippocampus through memory formation, it can trigger those feelings of trauma. And the brain can try to protect itself by expressing disgust or outrage to avoid uncontrollable grief. That's only one thing. Here's the other thing, social identity. Your social identity has changed, which means your brain starts to otherize them. They are not in your tribe. And human brains love nothing more than embracing and supporting the tribe and subverting or battling the outgroup. That's why it's important we learn not to otherize people or we encourage their brains to do the mirror image of what our brain does and we just become camps shooting arrows over big stone walls. I work intentionally in prayer and meditation and in Bible study at de-otherizing people. I read about Jonah and his disgust with Nineveh and God's delight in Nineveh, right? I read those kinds of stories, and I, I, I do the Lexio Divinia, and I read over them, and I read over them, and I ask God to help me have grace towards Nineveh. This happens over and over and over in the Bible, where you have the, the chosen people of Israel and a prophet saying, they're not the other. God's for them too. That's, that's messy, and it's full of contradictions. Um, but those are like the two energies at play because there's nothing more other than your former tribe because you take grief and you combine it with tribalism, and that is an incredibly powerful mix to the point you can't stand a song that you used to love, right? The point that you can't see that person show up in your Twitter timeline, after I heard the story of the prodigal and the older son, I realized like the faces of the older sons that disgusted me came to mind. And I've picked up a practice of praying for those people every day, that God would bless them, that God would keep them, that God would lead them. How's it going? It's okay. Sometimes I'm like, God, would you bless them? Would you keep them? But some days I think about um, the good days I had with those folks. I think about when they came to the hospital, when my mom was really sick and stayed for hours, and they, you know, one of my friends. He knew I was really into a certain kind of milkshake and brought one, and like I really like milkshakes. <laughs> and it's those intentional actions of detoxifying uh, your feeling towards those people, and that may take like professional therapy. Um, you didn't say how long you're in this faith tradition. I'm going to assume it's probably like more than 15 years, right? Yeah. So guess what? That's a multi-year recovery process of grieving. That's a big loss. That's a big death. Uh, so give yourself some grace. It's okay to go, oh, yeah, I'm angry, and just experience that. 
but also to learn to release it for your own health and well-being. Um, but ultimately, I think, so that we can be salt and light. Hi. Uh, thank you uh, for, for all that you do. Uh, I'm also from, a, kind of grew up in the, in the church now. Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure what I call myself. I'm a research scientist. Uh, and uh, so, so I, I view the world very much in, in variables. So mm-hmm. uh, dichotomous variables or continuous variables uh, mm-hmm. are two things that come to mind. One thing that's really been on my mind lately is that very few things in life are dichotomous. Life is a continuum uh, and, and typically on some sort of bell curve, uh, depending on, on the scale uh, at which you're viewing things. I'm curious, kind of both from uh, a biological perspective as, as humans mm-hmm. and also uh, from a social perspective, um, why we have the tendency to dichotomize things. Is it because it's easy um, or is it some sort of mechanism to survive? And then at the same time, what is the danger in doing that, uh, losing nuance? And, and then perhaps what is the benefit? There has to be some sort of benefit to that. So uh, really those, those types of, of issues. Um, and, and then, well, I guess, I guess I'll stop there. <laughs> right on. Okay, fantastic question. Um, I'm going to assume some people heard that question and are like, I don't understand the question. So I'm going to slightly unpack it. Um, a dichotomous variable would mean something is zero or one. And those are your two options. Uh, is this a chair or is it a balloon? That's a dichotomous variable. We can safely say... I'm not aware of any middle ground between chair and balloon, although I'm sure someone will tweet or email me and explain to me how I'm wrong. What if you tie chairs to a balloon? Okay, good point. Um, Whereas uh, a continuous variable is uh, zero to one with all points in between. So 0.575 isn't zero or one is ever so slightly closer to one. Now, that would be a continuous variable that doesn't have a bell curve, the values between zero and one. That'd just be a flat line. When we say a bell curve, we mean if we sample things, um, you'll have lumps in the distribution that tend to be stronger in the middle and weaker toward the ends. So a continuous variable that expresses itself as a bell curve would be the height of adult males in a given city, right? They're going to be a big lump in the middle. It's going to taper off, and there's going to be very small values on either end. Uh, That can also look like half a bell curve can be the power law, where you have a big lump on one end, products ordered on Amazon. The most popular things get ordered a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Some things get ordered almost never, and it creates this slope. And on the Internet, they can't see me making a slope with my hand. Sorry. I don't know why I look at the internet like my laptop <laughs> represents the internet. Brains are strange. So in reality, dichotomous variables are in fact relatively rare. Um, because you're kind of on a spectrum that includes bacterium and bananas and 
you know what I mean? Like DNA is a, is a continuous variable kind of information. Um, so it can actually be somewhat difficult to even explain, like, is this this species or is this species? Is it a subspecies? Um, it gets really difficult when we talk about uh, races in animals. Uh, chimpanzees, there's seven different races of chimpanzees. Uh, genetically speaking, there is, most scientists would agree, one race of human beings. Uh, so race becomes like a social construct. Um, that's still <laughs> incredibly important, but, um, but our brain looks at the opposite. Our brain wants to turn things into dichotomies, craves it. Why? You don't perceive reality as it exists. You see, um, this stage is awfully monotone. Well, you know, you've got some, we've got a green Christmas tree. We've got like red ornaments that hang from it. There's no such thing as red or green. Those aren't innate qualities to the universe. Your brain interprets an electrical signal sent by your eye that represents a wavelength of a photon as red or green, but the underlying reality is that red and green are a continuous variable expression of the frequency of photons. Super accessible stuff we're doing right now. Nobody's lost? <laughs> so your brain builds a map of reality that's relatively low fidelity. So your brain is a storytelling machine and it tells the story by throwing things away it thinks are unimportant to your immediate survival. Your brain's story is designed to help you find water and food and shelter and sex and the biological imperatives you need to survive. Now, because you're a human, it also includes building models of other people's consciousness so you can guess what they think about you, especially when you do different things, so you can impress them to either be part of a tribe gain favor with higher ranking members of the tribe, or mate with members of the tribe. That's what a social animal does. You have a social consciousness. It is easier to sort things into dichotomous variables than in real time assign a progressive or continuous value. So if you take away civilization and you put us in an open savanna and the grass is waving, and you take the neurological horsepower to decipher, is that a hyena, or a lion, or a cheetah, or a, no, it doesn't matter. Is it safe or unsafe? That's a much faster decision. And guess what the penalty for being wrong is in a false positive? Nothing. And guess what the penalty for being wrong is in a false negative? Death. That's what we call a very strong evolutionary pressure towards dichotomies where false positives aren't a big deal. See what I mean? Now imagine how you view the world with that information.
And it's all about saving energy. Brains are expensive organs. They take a ton of calories. They take a ton of oxygen. When you get as big brain as humans, they increase infant mortality. They increase maternal mortality. Mortality. The odd thing is it creates helpless infants, which what? Need larger brain parents, right? A helpless infant requires more sophistication to keep alive. How long does it take an, uh, an antelope to learn to walk and to feed itself? A couple of hours? How long does it take a human infant to learn to walk and feed itself? And so we have this weird evolutionary pressure that says, uh, have smaller birth brains and larger adult brains, which takes a longer childhood. That's why we're so weird in the animal kingdom. And all of this is driven by the mass and calorie consumptions of brains, which is exactly why dichotomies are favored by evolution and why science is so hard and why nuance is so hard. We are more comfortable with friend or enemy than frenemy, right? It's way easier to say, are you with me or against me, than we can form a coalition in some cases, but have oppositional energy in others. Nobody wants to invest that kind of time because our brains hate it. We have to turn the neocortex on, the outer layer of the brain, that's slow, and, and to do the same amount of computational work takes a lot more energy and uh, has more limited resources, and we'd like to favor the fast, more ancient neurons in our limbic system. So we have to develop as a discipline an ongoing fostering of uncertainty and subtlety and nuance. We have to train our brains to be more neocortical and less limbic. And uh, why I love that question so much is I think so many of our social ills are created by our tendency toward dichotomy. Uh, hi, Science Mike. Hi. I want to thank you for doing your show. Um, I, I did a big deconstruction from a fundamentalist Baptist church about nine years ago. Um, but you weren't doing your podcast back then, so um, I powered through all your backlogged episodes in about two months. <laughs> okay. Um, and there's so many things I'd like to ask you, um, but the biggest thing is that um, I'm part of a church um, that's more conservative, and I mm -hmm. definitely lean more progressive, but I'm in a unique position because I, uh, I run the music there. Um, I'm married to the pastor's daughter. Um, <laughs> that's I, a big data point. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. But they give me the opportunity to speak from the pulpit, and they don't question what I say. They, uh, they say, just say what you want, and we'll listen. Um, and I've been fortunate enough, I was able to speak on uh, um, climate, uh, climate change. Man. And uh, while I got a lot of weird looks from <laughs> standing up there, um, a lot of people... Uh, just looked at me like I was dumb. Uh, there, there were a couple people that came up and uh, said they appreciated what I said. Um, so I think you're, you're the right person to ask this question. How far do I push the people before I, I accept that some people can't be changed? 
Oh yeah, I'm definitely the right person to ask that question. Because <laughs> as you know, I still attend a conservative evangelical church, and I'm universally popular in my home city. Um, <laughs> it's actually funny, the fewer miles from Tallahassee, Florida, that I perform an event, the less people come, right? Because in that region, I'm, I'm the, you know, weirdo, heretic, former Baptist, not science mind. Um, and as I get further away, and people don't remember me with that identity, <clears throat> they first hear of me as whatever I am, and it, it doesn't bother them as much, right? Because the change in belief freaks people out. Why? Because it messes with their model of reality. They made a bad prediction, and evolution hates that. Seriously. Uh, so, for example, if I were to talk climate change with conservatives, I wouldn't talk about the scientific justification for, um, you know, human-caused climate change as a scientific concept. I would talk about the edict and command in Genesis to care for the earth. And in order to demonstrate the degree to which God has invited humanity to be co-creators, I would mention that the theology in the church is that the fall changed all of creation. So human behavior in the Bible affected the natural world dramatically because God gave people the authority to care for the earth. And that would be how I centered a discussion like that. Anytime I was talking about an issue in that church, I would take the lens of Scripture they use and talk about the Scriptures in a way that they can understand and relate to. And I wouldn't think that's duplicitous because there is no single lens the Scripture was written with. Different it took 1,500 years to write the Bible. So different authors used different lenses as they wrote the text. So reading the Bible with multiple lenses brings it to life. It doesn't kill it. Um, now, how far can you take it? Um, Ask Jesus what happened when you brought a new way of reading the Torah to the people. Um, ask any Christian martyr. <laughs> you take it too far, for a while it's really exciting. When you're, when you're making numas, we're all for you, right? <laughs> Sorry, love you, Rob. Uh, but then if you, go, if you go too far, you've gone from being uh, a source of inspiration to a danger. I don't know where that line is. I do know, Rob says you can't leave people where they don't want to go. A lesson I think he legitimately earned the right to say. I tend to favor on the side of honesty on preemptively letting people know, I might not be a voice you're interested in, <laughs> right? 
Um, but I'm also not married to the pastor's daughter. <laughs> That's, wow. Um, ultimately, if you're in a community where as you are following God, it will create an increasing source of opposition, it might be time to like relocate or, or where you can create a distance to go where God's taking you without I really harmed the Baptist church I used to go to. I really, really, now it's recovered, but the controversy around my presence in that building that went on for many months, a lot of people were deeply hurt, but they weren't changed. Their eyes weren't open to some new insight about God or about people. If anything, they were galvanized in their position by what they perceived as my betrayal. Sometimes I think the most gracious thing we can do is move on while we can do so in good terms. And I've had very smart people tell me I'm dead wrong about that. Um, I'm just not really interested in tearing down churches. That seems to be happening at too fast a rate in the first place. Uh, If people have found a way of relating to God that brings them peace, that fills them with love, that encourages them to treat others with dignity and grace, I don't want to take that away from them. That doesn't mean I won't call out things that I think are, are significant. That doesn't mean I won't call out the, the racist history of much of Protestant Christianity and the way that get ex- gets expressed today. But that conversation actually goes better if I remember and honor the good things about the faith tradition so that I'm not demonizing them. If, if you call someone, if you demonize someone, you've lost the ability to speak into their life. And the fact is, as a white, former evangelical, it's actually safer for me to have those conversations. It's safer for me to go into an all-white space and talk about racism than it is for a person of color. Um, But as soon as I set off the, the, the nuke of deep controversy in a community, there is no way. I could ever speak with authority or be received in that church in Tallahassee ever again. No one there will ever listen to something I have to say and believe a word of it. And one thing in my life that I would change if I could, I would have left that church and then started the work I do now. I would have changed the order. Because doing that would have not only saved me a lot of heartache and a few thousand dollars in therapy bills, it would have made that church a healthier place. I can't do the do-do-do-do after that. It seems too, too intense right there.
in the back. Hi, Science Mike. Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll try to be concise without without giving up comprehensiveness for the sake of brevity. I know that struggle. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm relatively young, recently moved out, come from Southern Baptist tradition, and sort of coming into my own, and a near and dear friend of mine um, came out of the closet, and I was surprised by my reaction. I was so much more upset that he didn't want to date me than the fact that he wanted to date other men. (laughs) But it opened opened this whole new door to me that I just, you know, I finally had a connection to the LGBT community. And the liturgist did this beautiful, respectful, just well done and comprehensive podcast on the whole LGBT community. But the, the question that I have specifically has to do with people who identify as being transgender. Okay. Um, I don't understand how someone with such an extreme disassociation from their physical self can be considered healthy. Okay. Because that's like the one thing that I don't hear anybody asking is, is this healthy? Mm -hmm. So condoning problematic or unhealthy behavior is going to be problematic for me to do. So Mm -hmm. can you explain to me some of the psychology, if we know any of it, for people who identify as being transgender? Yes, I can. Thank you for your question. So one thing gets a little messy in creating a space like Ask Science Mike is in order to be a place where people can grow, we have to have a space where uh, someone can be in the room and identify as trans, and we can have to have someone in the room who feels comfortable enough to have questions about that. So I, I want to honor that you, that's a hard question to ask. So thank you. Um, scientifically speaking, Orientation is not really a thing. It's just not a thing. Um, I'm just doing, okay, so nobody brought kids, good. Sometimes, sometimes the live shows just suddenly go Ask Science Mike after dark with no warning. <laughs> and sometimes people bring like nine and 10-year-old children to the event. I'm like, you listen to the podcast, right? Oh, they've heard the after dark episodes. Oh, okay. Um, you have a more open house than I do. Uh, So we understand that organisms primarily have a neurological and biological impetus to what? Seek genital stimulation. And so when I grew up in the evangelical church, I was told that like there is is no instances in the animal kingdom of same-sex behavior. That turns out to be slightly incorrect. Uh, It's almost in the mammal world the opposite. Right, um, and animals like higher higher primates, like interspecies, no big deal. Anything I can do to get stimulation in that reason, let's let's make that happen, right? Because they don't have a moral ethic, they don't have sociological conditioning. Well, I mean that's oversimplifying it. Many primates do have a system of et- morality and ethics, but their culturalization is less elaborate than ours, and they certainly don't have a language capacity to draw. It. That's not true. Dolphins have so. Pretty much any way you slice it, humans aren't as special as we tend to think of them, right? Like, so pigeons turn out to be better art critics than people. That's true. If you ask, if you ask pigeons to, Adam ruins everything, anybody? If you ask pigeons to figure out if they look at art from a painter and you show them a piece they haven't seen yet, they outperform art critics in figuring out if it's a fraud or not. Pigeons. Chimpanzees have better short-term memory of numbers than we do, way better. You know, so anyway, 
little aside, we're not that special. But, um, so the same thing is true to some degree um, with biological gender. Uh, Evolutionarily speaking, sex is an adaptation to help multicellular organisms try to keep up with bacteria. So if you, the reason multicellularism, multicellular organisms exist, if you become a ball of cells, you can easier defend yourself against bacteria, right? You can pull your resources, really cool. So that turns out to be rewarded over and over. We got more and more complex, just trying to deal with the germs, right? And, uh, but it turns out if, as you grow larger and larger as an organism, your rate of mutation declines because you, all the cells in the colony have to start maintaining like similar genetic makeup. So your generations get longer as you reproduce. And from what we can tell, evolutionary speaking, males are a specialized type of female, right? So the first sexually reproducing organisms were more hermaphroditic. And uh, obviously for hermaphroditic organisms, what's gender? This is just a way for us to exchange DNA to accelerate our rate of mutation, to hopefully keep up with the bacteria that keep killing us, that keep making us sick. So to make a male from an inherently female embryo requires a genetic component along with delivery of hormones at key points in the development, and then you get a male instead of a female. That process is complex, and it doesn't always play out perfectly. And so you can have someone be born, uh, for example, with a uterus and a vagina and testicles instead of ovaries. That's a, that happens. Uh, it's called intersex. It's not trans. That's intersex, but intersex is, like I think like one in a thousand babies, it's not actually that rare. If you're intersex, you're biologically ambiguous in gender. Now for someone to be trans, from outward appearances, they are not biologically ambiguous, but we are learning they may be neurologically ambiguous, or even neurologically backwards, Uh, Or sometimes they have uh, more subtle gender variations. Occasionally, you can have um, mismatches between expressed gender and genetic gender. And those people we are finding statistically are more likely to be trans. So the science is still new and undefinitive and unexplored, But we are seeing, in many cases, a scientific basis for a trans identification. Uh, Now let me undermine my own argument. You can also see a neurological basis for psychosis. In a secular culture, the best way, I think, to make ethical decisions is the intersection of consent and suffering. 
Our actions should not violate another's consent, and our actions should not cause other people to suffer. And I think that's how you make a call between, well, if someone identifies as psychotic, they should be allowed to abuse people. No, that violates other people's consent, and it it creates suffering. But if someone identifies as trans, that's really their life, right? So so I made the turn on that issue when I was an atheist, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have no way to make ethical decisions, because I only understood morality through divine law, and I literally went through like an afternoon of hedonism, like I skipped work, and like I ordered pizza, and I ate pizza at like 2 p.m., and I was like, I was at home playing video games, eating pizza, and I was like, atheism is amazing. I'm just going to do what I want forever. It's a true story. And I was like, uh, I got to eat. So I have to have a job. So I guess I'll keep going to work. But other than work, I'm just going to do what I want. And in time, I realized that was obviously untenable, right? Like, I can't just literally do what I want whenever I want. So there has to be some way to make moral decisions. So I started reading, like, philosophy and ethicists and trying to build a decision-making system. And that's kind of what I came up with. Now, I will admit that for me today, the inclusion of people on different points uh, or different identities in the LGBTQIA plus space is actually also a matter of faith for me. Um, but I understand why people have interpretations of Scripture and interpretations of, of God's will that doesn't create that space. And so what I would lean on then is say, like, are we a secular society or are we a theocracy? And if we want to be a theocracy, we have to understand there is some diversity of opinion of what God believes about things in theist movements. And what are you going to do when a different group of theists is in political power and they make decisions about how we govern based on their interpretation of Scripture or a completely different set of Scriptures, which is why I'm a Christian secularist. Um, But so I would say, scientifically speaking, yes, absolutely, there is a basis for that, um, but it is also not definitive so far. Hi. It's really good to have you here. Thanks for coming. Thank you. So, uh, people are carrying around a lot of pain. Yes. And the more and more I engage with people around me, the more I see that their current pain is connected to past childhood hurt. Mm -hmm. My own story is included in this. Um, The scars that we carry affect the way we live today as we navigate the healing process. My question, if it's okay, is threefold. Um, Childhood pain is inevitable, but why do we store it and tuck away the trauma? Mm -hmm. Why do we avoid the grief? Mm -hmm. And is there a way that we can help children now process through their pain more thoroughly so they don't have to carry it as heavily throughout their lifetime? Gosh, that's a really, really, really unbelievably good question. Why do we store grief, store trauma? 
survival. Um, we learn out we have we learn we have these strong muscles and hands, and we climb a tree. We climb the tree really fast because we get good at, it, and we get too high and we fall. <coughs> you knock your breath out the first time. You are a hundred percent convinced you're going to die. Never in your life have you asked your lungs to breathe, and they'd be like, "Nah," <laughs> right? It's terrifying. And your brain incorporates that into your model of reality. And what happens? You're really cautious about climbing trees now. You either stop climbing trees, and it becomes like a phobia, or you climb trees more carefully. Survival. Let's put it in a social context. You're in a natural human society. Pre-civilization, never more than 150 people, right? Our, we're, that's kind of our neurological capacity for tribe. And there's one adult in your group that every time you toddle over, he just smacks you. And it, you get stars in your eyes. How many times are you going to do that in a row before you stop? It is a survival advantage to remember things that traumatize you. Incredible incentive for the brain to do that. Here's the problem. Now your brain, the storytelling machine, what's a face in your brain? It's a distance between eyes, the eyes and the nostrils, the nostrils from each other, the nostrils to the lips, the width of the mouth, as we understand it, is some data points. That's the face. You don't actually remember like other things about the person. You might remember their hair, if they have glasses or not, other things, secondary characteristics, but that's the primary way you recognize a face. If you lose that capacity, everyone looks like a stranger, even people you know. That's a neurological disorder. And so we're just looking for patterns and data to recognize people, places, and things. So we can get false positives on our trauma. And that creates things like anxiety attacks or emotional outbursts. Trauma that was meant to keep us safe by recognizing something creates one of those false positives we talked about. So why don't we properly grieve all the time? One, it's unpleasant. And we like things that are pleasant. Do we prefer asparagus or vanilla ice cream when both are presented? One of them. Now, some of you might be weird, but I'm going to assume a majority of the room <laughs> is going to enjoy the velvety, frozen delight that is vanilla ice cream or whatever your poison is over asparagus. I mean, it makes your pee smell funny. So it's unpleasant to grieve. So we favor something more pleasant, which is avoidance. And then this gets reinforced because what do Western societies really have a problem with? Overt displays of negative emotion or grief. Anybody heard the phrase buttercup or snowflake since November the 8th? We shame people that express grief. Like if a family member dies, okay, take a day off work. And you can cry in your coffee for like a week. But after that, like, suck it up. We're Westerners. We don't grieve. 
And because social identity and social inclusion are such powerful pressures in the way we find worth, in order to fit in, we've been trained to repress grief. That's point two in your question. Point three, how do we help children not do that? We encourage grief. We accept grief. We maybe even celebrate grief. Uh, We create homes in which emotional expression is always accepted, but using your emotions to trample over others is not. It's not carte blanche. So one of my daughters has a temper. She is allowed to express anger. She can go to her room and be as angry as she wants. She's not allowed to hit her sister. Right? Um, and so what, what, what I see sometimes in a response to repression is almost an excess liberty where children aren't taught how their actions and emotions affect others. We want to do both allow children the freedom to be expressive but also understand the ways that their expressions can help others. And you do that by fostering open dialogue and communication in the home. There is no thought or feeling which is not allowed to be expressed about your experience in my home. However, your thoughts or experiences about your sister's outfit may not be freely expressed if said thoughts or feelings will create a sense of shame in your sibling. You see what I mean? You know, it comes actually pretty naturally to humans. We're social animals. All we have to do is not actively ruin the process. Uh, and, and most important in this, in this whole rhythm is to create the skills of dialogue and reconciliation for unforeseen circumstances or the times that our emotions go too far. So, um, I used to describe myself as a non-emotional person. I would lovingly refer to myself as a brick wall or a robot. And then somewhere within the last 18 months or so, things started to change, and I began to let people in again and feel things and cry, which I don't do. I cried when I finished your book. I've never cried reading a book. So I'm an emotionally manipulative person. Yeah, I've, I kind of picked up on that. Um, so my question is, is, could you explain what's happening in my brain? Because I remember at some point or another, you made a comment about when you have a spiritual experience, you tend to be more emotional and open to those things. Mm-hmm. Could you explain how that works in the brain? Yeah. First of all, we're experiencing this renaissance and vulnerability. Thank you, Brene Brown. This is the power of doing work you believe in, right? You can actually start to change the way people live their lives just with, like, some books and a TED Talk. I mean, that's crazy. Um, If you think crying is unpleasant, if you've been shamed for it, you develop coping strategies to prevent it. That might be overt repression. That might be intellectualization. You might turn your analytical capacity onto your own mind and say, where is this sadness coming from? What does it feel like in different parts of my body? Let me get my white coat and my magnifying glass, and what do you know? The sadness goes, and it disappears. And all that happened was like, I got dust in my eyes for a second, but it's over. That's, you know, uh, in, in some ways that's good. 
It can be good. I don't have to cry. It means like in times of crisis, maybe I keep it together really well. That's the true thing about me. Um, maybe it means, you know, I feel like I function better. I don't experience negative emotions. But maybe there's an odd sense of distance and detachment with other people all the time. And maybe there's like a sense of discomfort when they cry. Like, I don't know what to do. I can't cry with them. That would be weird. So maybe I just do this. I awkwardly padded the air, Internet. So uh, <laughs> I waved to you, Internet. So I have to like subtitle this show. So a couple things can happen. One, you can like grow as a person. <laughs> and you can get in touch with your vulnerability. And you can stop being afraid of being judged by others or yourself when you express emotions. And that creates a cycle wherein you're, you don't use your defense mechanisms to shut off your feelings. Which can be crazy because I cry all the time now. I watched sausage party in my hotel room <laughs> this afternoon. And I mean, that movie shouldn't have gotten an Oscar, right? Like, I get it. I was really uncomfortable with some of the subtext. I get, like, comedy should be freeing. But I thought, like, some of it was just, like, overt racism. Um, but then I still cried in the film. Uh, and if you've seen that movie, that's absurd. <laughs> to cry at that film. Like, I cry at everything now. And the floodgates opened for me after my mystical experience. My mystical experience caused me to kind of re-examine everything I thought about the world. And in order to get in touch with that light, I also had to get in touch with the dark. When we limit our emotional dynamic range, Oh, man, I'm literally stealing Brene Brown right now. Whatever, she's a good researcher. Uh, at least I cited her. When you, like, limit your movement into the dark, you also limit your ability to feel good things. So the springboard of sadness and grief and melancholy is actually an excel, a more powerful joy and elation. It's to have a greater disparity um, it's like vinyl versus MP3, right? Like just a richer emotional experience. I don't actually think vinyl is richer, but I thought it was a good cultural metaphor. <laughs> I think a lot of that psychological, like oh, look, the needle sounds really cool. And anyway, I was almost went on a science rabbit trail. Um, mystical experiences create a hyper connected state in the brain. And because of that, they can drag some things up that were once hidden. But you can also have that happen without a mystical experience. But in the same, the same thing is happening either way. You're allowing parts of your brain to be stronger associated with experiences than you have in a long time. And uh, I think it's great. I've learned like a lot of the reason I get like Dear Abby style questions on this program, which was meant to like answer science and faith questions, and it's all about like half the questions are emotional trauma. It's because I cry with people. I don't have anything brilliant to say. I just tear up too, and people feel like known when you cry with them, right? Like people, like they really feel a sense of connection. So like after the event, when people come up to me, 
and they tell me the thing they've been dying to tell someone, and they start crying, I just start crying immediately, and they feel better because they weren't judged for being sad. So I think it's, a, it's actually this beautiful thing. Um, I think when men cry, we start to repair masculinity. I think when men cry, we start to subvert patriarchy. We start tearing down the negative cultural connotations of masculinity and femininity. I think the fact that I'm affectionate and cry is going to save my kids money and therapy. You know what I mean? When one of my daughters is upset, the fact that I'll not only hold her close, I'll cry too. I think that's good. I think that's healthy. And not only being not negative, I actually think it's a benefit to society. And I think uh, Brene Brown's excellent peer-reviewed research would reinforce that. So I have had depression and anxiety for years and years. Um, Coming up on the two-year anniversary of my suicide attempt, Mm. Um, and in the aftermath of that, I found out that my mom attempted suicide when she was a teenager. Um, And I knew already before that that my uncle had committed suicide and died by suicide before I was born. Um, And there's a lot of evidence that this is genetic, that Mm -hmm. depression and and mental illness just runs in my family. But it seems like panic attacks and depression make it difficult to find food and shelter and pass on my genes. (laughs) Um, And it doesn't seem to have any genetic benefit at all, um, evolutionarily. Um, So why would it be passed on? Okay, (laughs) really good question. Really, really good question. Evolution doesn't care what you do after you successfully breed. So selection pressure does not apply to later in life phenomena. Evolution doesn't screen against cancers that are common for people in their 50s and 60s. If they die, their kids can already take care of themselves. And if you take a more compressed reproduction cycle that has been more typical in our history, where people are having their children in their teenage years, you realize that Anything past 30 is gravy to natural selection. So that's one piece. Uh, A lot of depression intensifies as we age, but not all. And I say that as someone who put a shotgun in my mouth in my teenage years, who tried to hang themselves in their teenage years. So what's the deal with that? Uh, The other kind of odd thing about suicide, it is more common in more developed societies. So there seems to be something about the way we live our lives now that fosters more of that darkness. I'm leaving well-accepted science and pontificating right now. I always like to disclose when I do that. But Would I have had the time to just sit and think about how I feel before agriculture? When my next meal has to be chased down 
or gathered all day a few calories at a time. Right? Because remember, bananas didn't used to be like bananas. Corn didn't used to be like corn. We made that stuff through agriculture. Genetically modified foods are all we eat. Domesticated food and plants are all genetically modified by people. And when you go into pre-agrarian societies, I don't think we had the space for introspection to allow whatever that genetic component is that creates what selection pressures you would think would eliminate um, to be manifest so fully. Now, why would evolution in those contexts still reward like clinical depression is, is very different than situational depression, as is anxiety. It's not like you, if you have situational depression, if you get to the underlying emotional issues, if you get to the circumstances driving the depression, the fog just kind of lifts. If you have clinical depression, your brain is biased towards this melancholy state or even this total lack of feeling in more severe cases of depression, regardless of your circumstances. Why would evolution reward someone with a darker outlook and an increased fear response? Because when the sunny optimist says, I think there's better food over the mountain, the person with a darker temperament goes, I don't think there is. And there's enough to eat here. We're not doing great, but we're not, we're not all starving to death completely. You gotta remember as a social species, we're, we're not solo animals. So our gene expression happens in the context of community always. It is why evolution has also uh, kept uh, people like me around. Seriously, we've learned that there's a bias towards thinness or fatness in all cultures and civilizations. Well, the, fa the thin people tend to be a lot healthier. Why would evolution keep people like me around? Because when food gets scarce, those of us that gorge when we eat survive longer, right? These extra pounds, if like, if the grocery stores stop stocking the shelves, what do I have here? 3,500 calories a pound times like 30 pounds? I got extra weeks over some of you skinny people. <laughs> weeks where I'm just like, I mean, I'm hungry, but I'll make it, right? <laughs> and so this is how genetics happens in communal expression. It rewards a diversity in physical and emotional temperaments. And in fact, we're learning. This is really crazy. It seems like evolution also can end up favoring traits that don't actually result in successful offspring in social animals. If your contribution to the group increases the survival of members in the group from an evolutionary perspective. 
There's no such thing as individual human evolution. So I think what we have is a, an intersection of an unprecedented context for your genes to function in, basically unlimited food, uh, almost guaranteed access to shelter, and <laughs> the luxury to create an unfathomable number of social taboos and mores and norms that have to be followed because we're not so busy trying to eat. And uh, that could be how those genes keep getting expressed. And could I be honest? I'm really happy your genes keep getting expressed. I'm happy you're here. And I'm happy... The counselor that talked to me after my second suicide attempt had tried eight times, and she got it. <laughs> she got it in a way that the first guy didn't, who was just like, well, I'm going to give you this book, and everything will be fine. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm so glad you're here because we need you. We need the lineage that led to you, and we need the unique expression of humanity that is exclusively you. So I'm glad that both God and evolution brought you to this world and to this room. Uh, hi, welcome to the great unchurched wasteland of New England. Thank you for coming. Uh, my question has to do with cynicism. Okay. Uh, I've until recently been a proud cynic, or as I, you know, and other cynics call it, a realist. Uh. Um, I don't <laughs> tend to call it that anymore. But um, I was raised Catholic, gave up on that, was an agnostic for a while, uh, became an evangelical Christian for about 10 years, gave up on that. Yeah. Uh, I'm sort of in an agnostic what's happening here sort of phase. Um, and I'm a five on the Enneagram, if that helps okay. answer the question. Paint all. a picture. <laughs> so I know I've, I've heard you talk in your podcast about cynicism before, and there's studies that link it to dementia and all kinds of not cool stuff. So I guess you could say I'm becoming cynical about cynicism. <laughs> um, but it has to serve... Purpose. So I, I also have a multifaceted question. Okay. And I'm also married to a pastor's kid, by the way. So, okay. Um, is it possible for cynicism and optimism to sort of coexist in a brain, given that, as you've said before, brains are actually multiple systems, each with separate subcomponents? Mm -hmm. um, does cynicism play any role in healthy things like forming boundaries? Or is that unrelated? And how do I, how do I become more optimistic when I'm, but the cynical part of my brain is sort of like, yeah, like that'll work. Right. Okay, great question. Cynicism is exclusively born from optimism. Pessimists don't need cynicism. They already think things are going to be bad, right? There's no reason to be cynical. Like, you don't have to be ironic, like, oh, yeah, that's going to work. You just go, 
that's not going to work. That's pessimism, right? Like that's 100% sincere. Uh, Optimists go, that's going to work, right? So cynicism is when your idealism and your optimism have been burned too many times in a row. Because you're like, it's going to work, and it didn't. And it hurts. And so you create a sense of detachment. Cynics are frustrated idealists. You cannot have cynicism unless you had idealism to begin with. Uh, my, I am an idealist of the nth degree. So is my friend Michael Gunger, which is the reason he and I can be so incredibly cynical. It's because we actually have really high hopes and even expectations for the world, right? When a friend of mine says, we could never have a world of racial equality. I can't believe that because I'm an idealist. <laughs> so cynicism is the brain trying to distance itself from pain uh, by preemptively judging it's not going to work. It's a, it's a cognitive defense mechanism. Um, trying to store my archives for the recovery from cynicism technique. Forgiving those that burned your optimism is a big piece. Oh, I'm reading your mail. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so that cynicism came from somewhere. And um, like you don't get cynical about you build a car or you fixed an engine and it wouldn't start. You're not like, oh, you can't fix engines. You just like keep working on the engine until you learn to be a good mechanic. Cynicism comes from people that hurt you. Although an institution or organization might have a bias, that bias gets expressed through what? Individual people. So identifying those that help foster that cynicism and learning to forgive them is a step towards releasing the cynicism. And then, healthier expectations. So in my own process on racial justice, uh, which is ongoing and will always be for me, I thought I, thought I had it, because I didn't see race. I'm good, I don't see race, we're all the same. And then when I realized that, although that's probably better than like outright segregationism, it has its own bag of problems, I got into a state of grief and guilt that was paralyzing, which actually gave me distance from the hard work of dismantling racism, my own guilt, my own shame. So as I process that, uh, right now I'm fighting cynicism because I, I had this idea that we were making tremendous progress as a society. And some of my friends of color warned me about my excitement for several years straight. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 we're going to do it. Like this generation, we're going to do it. We're going to finish it. Um, 
So what have I learned? My friends with multi-generational experience (laughs) with trying to create progress on race in America were right and I was wrong. Who'd have thunk? Uh, So what do I have to do as an idealist to avoid cynicism? I have to adjust my expectation that progress is slow and inconsistent, that it's not always forward, that sometimes we fall back. And that my idealism must be attached to the ongoing effort and not the outcome. So do I remain an idealist that says it is possible to create a world in which people of all races and ethnicities have equal social and economic access and opportunity? Yes. Do I think we're going to have that turkey cooked by 2041? No. Because if I hang on to that, it's going to be just the next group of kids. They'll get it then I'm going to become a cynic on race. And if I become a cynic on race, I stop working for it. And that's the danger of cynicism. Now, why then would cynicism be a thing brains do? Because it can help you cope in your own context, right? Evolution doesn't necessarily reward you for thinking systemically about all people, right? Evolution really rewards you for thinking about what? Like your group. And in that context, cynicism can serve you quite well. This is why faith is important to me. It's my faith that tells me you're really into a first century Palestinian. Dude wasn't white. (laughs) And then like his most passionate follower, the Apostle Paul, took a message that everyone thought was just for Jewish people, and open it to Gentiles. Racial inclusion is in the DNA of Christianity. We just keep screwing it up. And that's why it's necessary to confront your own cynicism. It's hard work. And it means cynics don't risk emotional loss. If you just know it's not going to work, then you're not risking being hurt or disappointed. If I was really cynical, then a a racial disparity in an election would only reinforce how smart I am. But I think I'd rather just grieve. And I'd rather just grieve so I can keep working. Okay, so my question is about our brains and what happens in our brains when we experience the good and evil of the religion we identify with. So I went to a very teeny tiny Christian school and it was like church six days a week. So I can say that I have heard God's voice and felt physically his love for me, Mm -hmm. just the same as I have seen a demonic entity Mm -hmm. and heard demonic activity, Mm -hmm. just the same as I've prayed in tongues and helped to 
get a pray a spirit off of someone. So with experiencing the good and evil of Christianity that's in the Bible, what is really happening in our brains? Is it in the same areas or same regions that it's, oh. it's expressing or like what really would be the reason for me experiencing those things? That's a fascinating question. I don't think I've seen a study of a brain imaging of someone experiencing demonic presence. Internet, help me do homework there. If you find one, send it to me. I'm hooked. Yeah, universally, what I've seen in studies are imaging of people having positive religious experiences or doubting religious experiences. Here's a spoiler alert. Science is very competitive and highly tied to economics. There's an incentive in science to only publish positive results. Nobody gets more funding, even though it's important, for finding a negative result. So as you're looking for a possible hypothesis, you try to back a horse that's going to win, and it helps if what you're researching is juicy PR for the institution. So brain imaging about what people experience when they feel God's love gets funded really easily because the institution goes, oh, wow, we could get funding from conservatives too? <laughs> and people are really religious, so we like validate their religious expression using science. That gets funded incredibly well. When we study people who doubt, oh, man, people doubt all the time. They identify with a study. If you're like, I don't know if you know this, fMRIs and other brain imaging systems are crazy expensive, which is why in brain imaging studies, the sample sizes are usually pretty small. It takes a long time to image a brain in real time on a very expensive piece of hardware. So if you're writing a grant and you say, I need $3 million to study demon possession. <laughs> I want to dust off the resume. Um, so I'm not aware of any study. Now, I could like try to riff, and that's incredibly dangerous. So one of the, the biggest problems we have in reporting on neuroscience today, um, other than very small sample sizes and people making overdrawn conclusions, it's like when I talk about what God does to the brain, it's not based on a single study. It's based on a lot of studies. And it also includes qualitative and quantitative research that's not based on brain imaging. Right? So I, that's why I'm comfortable talking about those things. I'm always reticent to take a single study and draw a conclusion from it. And I'm really reticent to go, based on my understanding of what different parts of the brain do, these parts of the brain could be involved. Because I don't even think neuroscientists are qualified to do that yet. When we look into the brain, we're about with neuroscience where astronomy was when we made the first telescope. So we look out in the sky and we're like, whoa, that's not just a point of light. That's a, that's a sphere. And it has rings. That was radical stuff. Um... And it turns out, like, some of the fundamental assumptions of early astronomy haven't been stunningly correct as we got better imaging hardware. 
And the, th the same is going to be true for brain science. So I want to honor how great a question that was, but I want to preserve, I'm not a scientist. The only way people get asking me science questions is if my hit rate on accuracy is super high. If I start spouting off just like what I think about science, then one scientist writes the scaling blog post, career over, no more book deals, right? So I, and, and let's be honest, a lot of science communicators, they need the ratings, they need the funding, uh, but it's important to me, if I want to advance meaningful dialogue between science and faith, is I always hold to good science. So maybe we'll get a study in the future that we can answer that question, or the internet will let me know of studies I haven't seen. It's so weird I keep pointing to it. It really, I'm trying to stop and I can't. Um, and if that happens, it's my word to you, I will post a follow-up on the show as I get information about that, okay? Hey, so I have two questions about meditation that you've talked about a little bit in the past. Um, so I have the app on my phone where a guy in like a soothing accent tells me to breathe for like 10 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. Is I mean, it a southern accent? No, it's like second only to yours. It's then it's not that soothing. Anyway, no, go ahead. Right. I'm of like English descent, so it's close okay. for me. It speaks to me. Um, right, and I put the headphones on, the guy tells me to breathe for 10 minutes, and it's great. I do it in the middle of the day. Um, which I guess is a form of mindfulness meditation, which is different than what I've been sort of trained or taught you know, historically or in my past about um, sort of Christian meditation, which is to meditate about God and to think things about God or Jesus. And I've heard you describe in a recently aired podcast about, you know, I'm going to be super reductive, but I don't mean this in a negative way. Staring at candles and telling yourself that God loves you is like a thing that you can do for mm -hmm. long periods of time. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and, I've, and I've experienced some of that as well. And I'm curious, first of all, in terms of the neurological benefits of meditation, how similarly beneficial are these sort of breathe and try not to think about all your thoughts type of meditation? Yes. And the specifically focus on certain things. And then the second question, um, isn't the sort of reminding yourself that God loves you while you look at candles thing, isn't that sort of selling yourself something or can't you convince yourself of anything if you look at enough candles long enough and tell yourself the same thing over and over again? Oh, yeah. And is that awesome. especially effective if you've pre-decided that you want to believe something as opposed to maybe if you're in more sort of a doubt phase or a, like a discovery phase of your faith? Is it useful or are you like, no, I've just decided that I'm going to believe in the flying spaghetti monster and so I'm uh -huh. going to stare at candles until I don't doubt it anymore? Right. Fantastic question. Uh, okay. For question one. Uh, prayer is a type of meditation, neurologically speaking. So the neurological benefits of Christian prayer and Christian meditation are equally found in secular mindfulness meditation, in Buddhist meditation, in Muslim prayer. All those things have the same brain health benefits couple of things that are different. Mindfulness meditation often does not incorporate the same reduction of activity in the parietal lobe, and therefore the sense of um, transcendence or removable, removal from physical space that religious meditation does. If that's a thing you're into, it's important to have like a religious spice 
to your meditative practice. Now, someone like Sam Harris is an atheist who engages in non-God-centered spiritual meditation, and he reports that he has very religious-like experiences without religion in that meditation. I'm interested to see that studied. That, and don't read that as me being skeptical. Read that as me being genuinely interested. In terms of couldn't you meditate on it, couldn't you meditate on the fact that the flying spaghetti monster loves you? That's a, a phrase atheists use as like a joke about God, the ridiculousness, right? Um, yeah, if you did that after eight weeks, you would probably feel closer to the flying spaghetti monster. Uh, and you would probably get the same benefits to your brain. When I talk about the value of meditation, it is not as a fact-finding mission. Um, I am prescriptive with prayer and meditation. So if you're in a doubting phase, and it's important to you to get to the bottom of the God thing, go for it. What I understand is that, A, there is no bottom. You'll just keep digging. Uh, and I speak from some experience there. Uh, I got to the point where, like, if you dig hard enough into epistemology and philosophy, you just fall into the void. We can't know anything. So forget the fact, can I prove God exists? I can't prove you exist, right? <laughs> like, solipsism is fascinating, but not good for helping you avoid the passing bus. Like, I can just stand here. The bus doesn't, right? Like, it just doesn't work. And, and that's not to say that all, because we can't prove anything, it does not mean all ideas are equal. We can still, once we make the assumption there is a reality, test ideas with evidence. We're giving like a little epistemology class right now. Anybody having fun on a rainy Wednesday night? Um, my point is, for the person who's gone through that long enough and they can't make their mind up, they maybe were an atheist for a while. They maybe just been agnostic and they feel frustrated and isolated and a longing for God. I understand by research, those three recipes make a delicious, delicious soup called suicidal tendencies. People losing their faith uh, are often at an extremely elevated suicide risk. And so then I offer a prescription. I cannot solve the God puzzle for you. But if feeling close to God is important for your emotional health and well-being, science demonstrates that this will help. Uh, and that's, that's my entire approach. I get really frustrated when religious people pass off my book to a skeptic and say, he has proven God exists. A, you can't prove things in science. You can prove things in math because it's axiomatic. You can't prove anything in science. There's no such thing as 100% confidence in the sciences because your data could be misinterpreted and it could be incomplete. So although we have a very, 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 very high statistical confidence that the earth is a sphere, that confidence is not 100%. Don't run away with that flat earthers. Um, so what do, we, what, do we, what do we do with that? The point of my book is I identified 
ideas about God that were more scientifically plausible, that you could place a much higher statistical confidence in, but the only reason I do all that is to provide some justification for Christian practice, a lived faith, and because I'm a mystic, I think that's the only way you can actually find God, is through the practice of faith. There absolutely is no set of variables or propositions. Prepositions would be a weird thing to try to find God through. (laughs) I'm really into grammar. Help me with my dangling participles. Um, That was a terrible dad joke. So, God can only be known through love. I really believe that. And I also say it's not scientific. What is scientific is that the most genuine spiritual experiences in brain imaging studies are non-linguistic in nature. What is scientific is that a practice of faith can be emotionally and neurologically beneficial. What is scientific is it is not delusional to be a person of faith. Um, but I, 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 well, I love your question so much because it gets to a common critique I have of a particular response to my work, which is to take my work and turn it into an apologetic proselytizing tool as opposed to a medicine for people who are suffering. And that's what I'm about. If people are happy atheists, man, be a happy atheist. You know what I mean? I'm in. Um, what, I, what, what troubles me is for the people who become post-religious and never again at peace. That's my crew. Well, you've done it. You've wasted a perfectly good rainy Wednesday hanging out with me. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to stick around. We're going to go down to the coffee shop, and I'm going to meet everybody wants to meet, talk to everybody wants to talk. I will mention that a phenomenal book called Finding God in the Waves is for sale in the lobby. I would be happy to sign your copy that you brought or your copy that you bought tonight if you want to come up and just have a selfie and no book signing, I still love you. Uh, but I really love signing books, I'll be honest. So um, I want to thank Greg Nordine for his magic editing the pod- podcast. I want to thank Andrew Galucky for pre-production work and organizing our together groups. If you'd like to connect with other Ask Science Mike listeners in your area, go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Together button. And I want to thank my patrons on Patreon for making the show financially possible. I had some microphones blow up this week because apparently you're not supposed to tour across the country with USB mics. And because uh, my patrons, like, not only feed me, I was able to get a new microphone and keep doing the show. So, patrons, thank you. And, of course, I want to thank my friend Jeb Botterford for writing the Ask Science Mike theme song. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week. (laughs) 